0: The following is a message by Dr. Brian D. Estelle from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, please visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. Uh, Psalm 67 is what I've chosen for this morning, partly because it's a short psalm, and I think it's important for chapel speakers to keep within their allotted time uh, so that we can be off to our other duties, Um, but also because uh, there's something in this that I think uh, is helpful for us with regards to our reflections on our own duties here at the seminary. And so uh, I would like to have us meditate for a few moments on Psalm 67 this morning. Before we do that, let's go to God in prayer and ask that he would open up our eyes uh, to see his word afresh and anew. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is indeed broader than all the heavens. Uh, We thank you for the many ways in which we can reflect uh, upon it here at this campus And we ask, O Lord, that indeed you would take away the lackluster that so often covers our eyes so that we might understand it anew and afresh and it might speak to us in a way that is helpful and edifying. And Lord, we pray that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we do pray all these things. Amen. Let me uh, first give you a fairly literal uh, reading of Psalm 67. You can follow along if you have a Bible there and then uh, we'll talk about this brief psalm. For the choir director on stringed instruments, a psalm, a song. May God be gracious to us and bless us, and may he cause his face to shine upon us. Selah. So that your way may be known in the earth, so that your salvation may be known among all the nations. The peoples will praise you, O God, the peoples will praise you, all of them. Let the peoples rejoice and shout for joy, for you judge the peoples with uprightness, and the peoples upon the earth you lead. Selah. The people shall praise you, O God, all the peoples shall praise you. The earth yielded its produce. God, our God, blesses us. God blesses us, and may all the ends of the earth fear him. What I'd like to do this morning is talk about this psalm uh, whose... Uh, organization and presentation is pretty clear uh, first of all in verses two to three you see the wish of the church for blessing and salvation the wish of the church that is the old testament church for blessing and salvation and then in verses four and five roughly you have the basis of the church's wor- uh wish namely the words and deeds of god the basis of that wish and then finally, the grounding of the church's confidence, uh, namely that blessing is enjoyed at the present time, uh, exemplified here in the language of a rich harvest in verses 6 through 8. First of all, a few words of introduction. This psalm, it's immediately apparent, it's all about the covenant of grace. Uh, you cannot but hear uh, this psalm read, And notice immediately the Abrahamic covenant and promises, uh, which are there. But interestingly, this psalm is very comfortable, even though it first and foremost is about the covenant of grace in its compatibility with certain uh, stipulations that can be found in the Mosaic covenant. Because after all, the Mosaic covenant is part of the administration of the covenant of grace. And indeed, the stipulations given there are compatible with the grace principle given in the Covenant of Grace and the Abrahamic Covenant. Kidner, for example, uh, says the following in his little book on the Psalms, and I think his comments are apropos. Quote, If a psalm was ever written round the promises to Abraham that he would be both blessed and made a blessing, it could well have been such as this. The song begins at home and returns to pause there a moment before the end but its thought always flies to the distant peoples and to what awaits them when the blessing that has reached us reaches all. The only past tense in the whole psalm is that of verse 6a. The earth has yielded its increase. But if the setting of the psalm therefore seems to be a festival of harvest home, it is remarkable how nature is overshadowed by history and the psalmist stirred by hopes that have no material or self-regarding element, close quote. Indeed, it was the famous Lutheran scholar, Hengstenberg, uh, who was so concerned to show the Christ-centeredness of the Psalter and how Christ was preeminent in the scriptures, who said the following about this psalm. In the fullest sense, however and we may say this both of the prayer and the intention in it, Uh, the fulfillment is only in Christ. It is after God has procured all the blessings of grace and salvation in him to his own people that there follows really and comprehensively, comprehensively the effect upon the heathen world, which is the object of the psalmist's wishes and hopes. So isn't that interesting that you have here the Abrahamic promises so clearly uh, testified to? Uh, If you notice at the top right-hand corner of the RPCNA Psalter, it actually says a missionary psalm or a missionary hymn. If ever there was a missionary hymn in the Psalter, uh, this is it. And uh, the record of history and how this psalm has been used at many a missionary conference shows that that's been recognized uh, by the church for a long time. But what I want you to note this morning is the integral intimate connection here in the psalm between the earthly and between the mundane blessings in the mind of the psalmist and the spiritual blessings that are to come or are hoped for uh, to come to the ends of the earth. Anderson, in his book, probably following Gunkel, uh, calls this psalm a community song of thanksgiving, hymn, question mark. And um, Krauss's estimation is perhaps correct that the psalm escapes easy, facile categorization according to the type of genre it is. So we press on merely to talk about what this possible thanksgiving hymn has to say to us with respect to these three points. Look at verses 2 to 3 with me again. The wish of the church for blessing and salvation. May God be gracious to us and bless us. May he cause his face to shine upon us. Well, you all know where that comes from, don't you? Uh, that's an allusion to the ironic uh, benediction and blessing. And there it is right at the uh, front of uh, the psalm. But then notice how it goes on. So that your way may be known in the earth, and so that your salvation may be known among all the nations. So isn't it interesting that uh, here a psalm that's so shot through with Abrahamic promises should talk about the typological legibility, if you will, of Israel to the surrounding nations. In fact, the German commentator Krauss notes this early on and says, Psalm 67 does not apply this blessing to itself, contentedly lay claim to it and restrict it, but Yahweh's activities of blessing in Israel are prayed for as a sign to the nations. Verse 2, all the world is to learn to know the way of Yahweh and the visible track of salvation, which Yahweh causes to be known where he appears in Israel. Blessing and with shining countenance with the allusion or citation of the Aaronic blessing. Kraus goes on to talk about the salvation effected progressively in Israel is to be perceived among all the nations. What about the basis of the church's wish? The words and deeds of God in verses 4 and 5 are the basis, and even up into 6. The peoples will praise you, O oh God. The peoples will praise you, all of them. Let the peoples rejoice and shout for joy. For you judge the peoples with up, uprightness. The peoples upon the earth you lead. So what is the basis for uh, the church's wish? as expressed in the early verses of the psalm? It's the words and the deeds of God. It's interesting, the Greek reads this, You judge the earth justly, or you judge the peoples. Calvin, indeed, in his comments on this psalm, saw a direct connection with Psalm seventy-two, verses twelve through fourteen, where there is the judicial conduct of the king who is the Messiah to come. And if there ever was a messianic psalm, Psalm seventy-two uh, surely is it. Hingston Bird talks about every sending forth of salvation is a judicial act of God. So the grounds, uh, the basis of the church's wish that the Abrahamic blessings would come upon uh, the pagan nations round about has at its foundation the very words and deeds of God, namely that he will judge the nations justly, that he has judged the earth justly, and that he will judge the peoples. And of course we know that that's done chiefly and especially in the work of the Messiah who was incarnate, who was made in flesh, who was born under the law for his whole life long and experienced the sufferings of being under the law and ultimately uh, the pain and curse of that most wretched death upon the cross. Well, what about the grounding of the church's confidence? This is what I want you to focus on this morning that I find so interesting especially with respect to the Hebrew mindset. Notice the blessings enjoyed at the present time, namely a rich harvest. It is as if this psalmist can easily transfer his mind and thought and concentration from spiritual blessings back to mundane blessings and back to spiritual blessings without even skipping a beat. The people shall praise you, O God, all the people shall praise you. The earth yielded its produce, God our God blesses us, God blesses us, and may all the ends of the earth fear him. There is a very strong allusion here in verse 6 to Leviticus chapter 26, verse 4. You know that chapter that has so much in common with Deuteronomy 28. Namely, benediction or malediction, as the Germans say, Heil und Heil. This is what Leviticus 26.4 says, I will give you rain in its time, and the earth will yield its produce, and the tree of the field will yield its fruit. Now, isn't it interesting that this raises important questions with regards to how earthly blessing and prosperity themes and motifs are related to spiritual blessing themes. As Hengstenberg again says in his volume on the Psalms, quote, "The seventh verse renders it manifest that the temporal blessings are not excluded, but are in the first instance referred to. Compare also the expansion of blessing in Deuteronomy 28 verses 1 through 14. And then he goes on to state something very interesting where he says, and I read this in the introduction, but it bears repeating now, quote, in the fullest sense, however, and we may say this both of the prayer and the intention in the prayer, namely that God's blessing would reach unto all the nations and all the nations would be blessed uh, in and through Israel, the fulfillment is only in Christ, It is after God has procured all the blessings of grace and salvation in him to his own people that there follows really and comprehensively the effect upon the heathen world which is the object of the psalmist's wishes and hopes. You see, in the Hebrew mindset, life, first and foremost, meant physical life, blessing in the physical life. But it is clear that the Hebrews would not stop here with thinking of the bounty of children, of friends, of prosperity, of victory over enemies. But nevertheless, that was the gateway to understand spiritual blessings. That's my point. And I think it's a very, very important point to remember that when we're talking about spiritual blessings, we want to remember that They have their feet on the ground first and foremost. The way to heaven is via the earth, so to speak. And we must not forget that, especially those of us who are so intensely wrapped up and engaged in the study of God's word, church history, um, systematic theology and apologetics. So as Gordon Wyndham says, with respect to this concept of earthly life and earthly blessing, and he goes on and says, "But what about life after death?" The Old Testament envisaged life continuing in Shaol, a shadowy, depressing version of life on Earth, and better existence in the presence of God himself. Psalm 73, Daniel 12, 1 through3, with all its concepts of resurrection. And then he goes on and says, but it is Jesus and Paul who insist that the full meaning of life is eternal life. It seems that Derek Kidner grasps this connection. That the way to heaven is through the earth, so, uh, so to speak. That as far as spiritual typology in the Old Testament, it is grounded in earthly mundane symbols. So in commenting on this psalm in verses 6 and 7, listen carefully to what he says. He is no less generous in grace, as we should put it now, than in nature, in the world of men, than in the harvest fields. The earth, with its increase, can be taken as the promise of still better things to come, perhaps even as a picture of them. As Gohardus Voss said years ago, the gateway to typology is through symbol in the Old Testament. So how does this apply to us? The Hebrews never saw their spiritual lives as somehow disconnected with the mundane and the physical. Quite the contrary, and here there is much that I think we can learn from them, even in our own lives as students and scholars. Let me tell you what I mean. I think it was B.B. Warfield, maybe it was Charles Hodge, I can't remember for sure. But he talked about when he was a student going to a prayer group and how piously and sincerely and fervently his fellow classmates prayed. And he left that prayer group feeling ashamed of his own piety until the next day when he went to Greek class and those same students who had prayed so piously had failed to do their homework exercises. And suddenly he realized, perhaps I'm not so impious after all, since he was able to acquit himself when he was called on by a professor with respect to his earthly duty. This reminds me of Philip Lindsley, the most popular of professors at Princeton College. You have heard it said, perhaps. He was sought by nearly every college in the central states for its presidency, Poor bloke, who would want that? And uh, he told our class, Charles Hodge says, uh, that we would find that one of the best preparations for death was a thorough knowledge of Greek grammar. Close quote. This, comments Charles Hodge in his quite quaint fashion, was his way of telling us we ought to do our duty. The point should not be lost on us that the way to the heavenly is through the earthly. So men and women, when you take up your studies here, whether they be of Greek grammar or whether they be of Hebrew grammar, whether they be lessons of church history and the mundane facts and dates uh, communicated therein, you never know how God is going to use that as part of the grand story and picture of bringing in the Abrahamic promises. So whatever you find your duty to be here at seminary, you ought to have, as B.B. Warfield reminded us, that mindset that you have a religious view and in. So if you're studying a Hebrew word and memorizing it, then you ought to remember this was given for the saving health of mankind. that might energize your studies, such mundane things. You may never know when you're making a flight across country when a bare-knuckle boxer returning from a black market fight in Vietnam with $20,000 cash in his pocket because he won, and he says, yes, sometimes people do get killed in these enterprises, may ask you for a sharp, precise definition of faith. What a sham. What a shame it would be if you had been derelict in your duty, in your mundane duty, and not be able to tell him about cognitio and a census, let alone fiducia. John Brown of Haddington, who lived from 1722 through 1787, was a remarkable man. He was uh, orphaned at a young age He experienced much of the providential care of the Lord, however. From his youth, he had little opportunity for formal education, so he taught himself Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. And as the church recognized the extraordinary preparation that he put himself through in his own self-education, they not only appointed him to the office of minister, but later allowed him to become a tutor of systematic theology. And he was often gainsaid because of his lack of formal education, so some detractors falsely claim that he was taught by the devil, not by himself. But in his wonderful little book on the Psalms of David in meter, he judiciously captures the essence of this psalm in its introductory notes and the intimate, integral relation between the mundane and the spiritual, between earthly blessings and earthly duties and Abrahamic promises of the gospel coming to the Gentiles. He says, while I sing, let me request the salvation of Israel. Let me supplicate the gathering of the nations to Shiloh. Let me praise the Lord that already this great work has begun and that the Lord who is mighty shall finish it in his time. There's nothing more to add to his summary of this psalm. Let's pray. Father, we uh, praise you for your great word. It is indeed broader than all the heavens. We thank you, O Lord, that you have acted decisively uh, in and through Jesus Christ and his work in judging the nations, in judging your own son and turning away uh, your wrath from your people because of his propitiation. Father, we thank you for these blessings that have come upon us. Father, we pray that you would guard us against temptation uh, when we would have our minds so much up in the clouds that we would be no earthly good. Help us, O Lord, to do our duty and to be of earthly good so that indeed we can be more heavenly minded and perhaps a benefit to others. Help us to that end by your grace. Uh, Even this day we ask for Jesus' name's sake. Amen. Copyright 2009 Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this broadcast on our website is preferred.